This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined by Mo Stewart. Mo, how are you keeping, mate? Not too bad, not too bad. I'd say the theme of this week has been reset and rebuild. Without having the big shadow of a Liverpool game over my shoulder, been able to do things a little bit more relaxed. And yeah, I think I've benefited from it. Yeah, well, there's not a lot going on on the Liverpool scene. Obviously, it's international break week. Um, I thought it was a bit grim the other day where we got the Bellingham news at 9am. <laughs> that was a great start of the day, really. Um, yeah, on a Monday as well. Like, yeah, no, no, I mean, like start the week right, why don't you? Exactly, yeah. People feeling on the first day of the week, first thing in the morning. Um, so I suppose we could have spoken, talked about that a little bit, but overall, there's generally not a lot going on. So we're going to keep going with the Q&A that we had last week. Obviously, we didn't get through everyone's questions. We never do. We probably never will. <laughs> but this week, we're going to have a go anyway. So, Mo, I'll let you um, I'll let you make a start from wherever you left off last week. Okay, like, well, there's one that kind of came in late that I almost tackled, but I want to go at now. And again, it's a little bit of a slight change from the normal conversation. Any centre-backs you like for the summer, which is asked by Daniel Salisbury. Now, Vardiol at um, RB Leipzig seems to be the man who most people are interested in. I think from a Liverpool perspective, it makes sense that we're looking at guys who play on the left side or who are suited to the left side. We've spoken previously that eventually Virgil is going to have to go, but we're going to need someone eventually to be able to partner Canate on that side. And I think someone who can do both, but is mainly suited to the left is someone who we should be looking for. I have some doubts around Guardiol, to be honest with you. I think he can be a little bit rash at times. And I think it's a hard school as a centre-half, particularly as a young centre-half, you've got a lot to learn. And the more experience you can get in the tank at that age, the better. So my option would be Alessandro Bastoni playing it into Milan. Now, Inter do often play as a back three, which would obviously be a difference to what we do. But I do think that he has the versatility to be able to do it. The other thing I like about him is his ability to bring the ball out of the defence. He could very much be a replacement for what we get from Joel Matip, which is such a crucial part of our arsenal when he's in the game and he's he's firing. I think it's one of those things, if we can look to replace it, we should do. There's always the question with the Italian players of would they come and et cetera, et cetera. I think Bastoni is one of the few who's openly expressed an interest in coming to England. Um, Inter Milan probably see him as one of their better players, so it might be tough to get him out. But I think if we're selling a big rebuild and we say to him, we want you to be the cornerstone of our team going forward, I think his head will be turned. So, yeah, Bastoni would be my pick, I think. Yeah, it's a good shout. I think one of the interesting things about about Liverpool's centre-back department at the minute is obviously Matip is probably going uh, either this summer, potentially getting sold on next summer when his contract expires. And um, but even with him in the team at the minute, if you look at Liverpool's options, we've kind of got five if you include Nath Phillips, and all of them are right footed. Um, and you, you mentioned there about having a player for the left side. Our player for the left side at the minute is right footed in Van Dijk, 
and that's kind of like i mean it's, i suppose it's virgil so you make uh, accommodations for that but if you look at our rivals in the premier league it's not something that other teams are doing um man united have just bought lisandro martinez because of that um michael arteta was very keen on gabriel um and pablo mari when he first took charge both because they are left footed um pep guardiola with laporte one of the reasons he signed him was because he was yeah. left footed. So it'll be interesting to see Liverpool look at if they were to move if and and how much they prioritise that whole left footed centre back thing. One left footed centre back who is, I'm curious that he's never moved, and he's 26 now. Is Pau Torres at um, Villarreal? Whether 26 is too old or not, I don't know. Um, I do think he's a good player. I do have some doubts in certain departments, but in terms of left-footed players, he's probably right up there, really, with with the left-footed centre backs on offer. Um, another one potentially. I mean, we're not going to get him now, actually, to be honest. But I, I flagged him a while back when we had that injury crisis, and it was Sven Botman at the time. Um, he's left-footed. We obviously yeah, didn't yeah. get him. He went to Newcastle in the end. Um. But yeah, it's difficult with centre backs. I think there's a lad at Benfica as well. Is it Antonio Silva? Yes. Um, he's. A, I think he's still a teenager, but he looks very good. But he's rifled it though, so it's a difficult one. There, there doesn't seem to be as many as you would expect, and I think having someone like Virgil, who's so adept at playing on the left, but is actually right-footed, almost convinces you it doesn't matter. But it really does open up the pitch, particularly if like like Bastoni or someone who can advance with the ball and get into attacking situations. If your defender's trying to block him off, if you can't play on his left side, then you can just basically send him send him into traffic in the middle and the ball will break down and you can get it back. If he can go on the outside, you can play a pass out to the left wing and keep going. So I think it opens up a whole different range of attacking options if you've got a guy who can actually be dominant on his true side that he's playing on. I mean, like you say, Virgil is Virgil, so he kind of makes it work. Um, about Pal Torres, what I would say, I think he's another one of those guys who's kind of come into his own a bit late, which is why he's probably still at Villarreal. Also, I do think he's quite loyal. I think it's his kind of hometown club. So they the price yeah. to him, the value to him, of him to Villarreal is high, and it's been higher than the value of the clubs who have probably been interested and all those things probably combined to mean he's still there. Yeah, so I've got a question. I've got, I've, I think there's a few questions on this, but funnily enough, the two most recent that we've had, these were sent in both two days ago. Uh, one from Joe Mitchell, one from Ben Marshall, and they're both basically the same question. They're both basically saying, Trent, midfield isn't very good. Why isn't Trent getting used in midfield? Can he be used in midfield? Should he be used in midfield? Kind of thing. Um, it's an interesting question. This one, you know, it's 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 like an ongoing debate, isn't it? Um, I think regardless of whether you play in midfield or you play as a right back, you still have to put a foot in, and you still have to defend, and you still have to regain the ball. And some, yeah, I mean, you could really argue that Liverpool's centre mids are more responsible more expected to put a foot in and regain the ball and offer control and things like that than the right-back. Um, if Liverpool are going to adopt that kind of safety net midfield, which we've had success with in the past, 
Trent is the polar opposite of that. You know, he's a high risk, high reward passer, and he tries things sometimes too much. Um, but because he tries things too much, if he was trying things from a right sided midfield role, and he had a a Joe Gomez fullback behind him, maybe we'd get done less on on the break on the transition in those spaces that Trent has left vacant because he's moved into the final third. So yeah, I don't I don't really know. I, I would be I would maybe we are getting to a point where he needs to be tested there just as like the, just as a thing. Um, just to shut people up. Just to say once and for all. But I feel yeah. like he's done that a couple of times. There was that one game uh a few years ago now away at Chelsea where he played in midfield and it didn't really go that well. And obviously, England, uh, Gareth Southgate tried it for England, but I feel like that was very much just to shut people up because they didn't really look like they had a plan for what he was going to do there. For me, this debate will go on and on until it happens or doesn't happen. Or Mm. or Trent himself comes out and says, I don't want to do it because that's the only way it's really going to be ended. I look at him and I look at what he's great at and I look at what he's not great at. And I, like you, think that his, the, the, his, the negative side to his game would be exacerbated and more damaging in a central midfield role. Central midfield, particularly. I think the thing that we look at with him, sometimes concentration is an issue. Sometimes he loses a man like at the back post or someone comes in. He's not always, he hasn't always got great vision of everything around him. That is kind of mitigated against by him playing as a right back and having the touchline as his kind of tag team defender. So he can always kind of show him that side. If you're playing centrally, you've got to look over both shoulders at all times. I feel like that would be an issue for him. I think you look at what we were saying before, tackling. Yes, he does have good percentage in terms of tackling, but volume is not as high. Volume would be massively increased if he was playing a central midfield role. I also think Liverpool are going to want to be able to do the double pivot, but then also have the ability to play a 4-3-3 as well and have guys who can switch between both. I I can understand why people would say Trent could play a double pivot when we're building up play, attacking when we've got the ball. He's in that position a lot. I think, though, when the ball breaks and we lose it, he has to go to the right side. I think the issues that we see with him not tracking back occasionally, put that in the centre, it's a lot worse. I think if you're going to play him in midfield, then a right-sided attacker, a right-sided eight maybe even, that's something that he could build into, perhaps. I mean, To be honest, I think that's all he could do. I I don't think he could play as a six, no, no chance. And I don't think he could play as a two either. I mean, even within the branch of what I was saying about him being in midfield for the build-up, you look, I'm looking on SofaScore now, and it has a season heat map. And there is only one tiny speck of yellow inside the center circle. Everything else is to the right of the center circle. So he really doesn't operate in the center that much. I think if you're playing a double pivot, and maybe you want to have a look at someone else as a right-sided attacker, maybe at a point when Salah's either playing centrally or have been substituted for whatever reason, or it's a game where maybe you don't think you need Salah. I think as a right-sided attacker in a 4-2-3-1, one, 
I think you could see some benefit to him there. Because again, you can have a defensive structure behind him, but you're still getting the attacking nature of him. He's still got some space to move into, which I think is important with Trent. But I do think all of these questions around where Trent should play will be dissipated once we get a midfield in place, like you said, that has energy, that has pressing, that has structure, that brings him back into playing the way that we all know that he can play. I think that is really still plan A. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, I think the, the bottom line is no, no matter where on the pitch you put him, he is always going to play like Trent. He's always going to be that high-risk player who tries all kinds of things. And because he tries so much, when you lose the ball, if you're not in a position to regain it, if you're open, if you're slow, second balls aren't very good, you will get done going the other way. That's 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 the kind of player Trent is. He has to be accommodated no matter where he plays on the pitch. So he's only become a problem since Liverpool's midfield has stopped regaining the balls that are defended after he's tried something, if you get what I mean. Yes. Um, so with, with the ball, I think Trent could probably play as a midfield eight. I think he will be fine as a right-back um, once he's accommodated. But defensively, I do understand some of the concerns, like because I don't, I don't think it's a myth that he that he's bad defensively. I've seen some people say that, like you know, it's exaggerated and things like that. And maybe in some small cases it is, but I do think it's just generally a fact that he's just not that good defensively. If I'm honest, um, it's kind of like watching. I've said this before a few times. It's it, it is like watching De Bruyne play as a fullback, and he's extremely dangerous when he's on the ball, but when he's defending, he's just not as good at it as maybe Robertson on the opposite side. I, th- that, that's I think undeniable. I think for me, it's almost as if to say it's not that he can't do it because he can do it. It's that you can't rely on him to always do it. So, whereas there are times you watch a game and maybe there's seven or eight times where he does it really well, the problem is, is that's probably seven or eight out of twenty-five. And the reason it's so high is because the opponents still see him as a point of weakness in the team because he's not as consistent as the others. If you send 25 balls towards Virgil van Dijk, you're probably still going to lose 20 of them if you're an attacking team. And I think the attacking teams know that. Whereas Trent, if you put enough volume at him, the averages say that you are going to get some joy. And it's that consistency of always being able to trust him to be at his defensive peak. And like we were saying before, concentration plays into that. It's something where teams see that maybe that if he is too preoccupied with his attacking job, that he might lose some of his focus. And that's why it's almost as if when the counter-attack's on, they first go there, because that's at the point where he's been most vulnerable. So all of these things feed into it. And from a perspective of Klopp, it must be frustrating because it's like, I know you can do the job of defending. I've seen you defend well. And he can put together like a clone clips of all the times he does it well. But it's like, I want this all the time. Give it to me all the time. You're an elite footballer. I need it all the time. And whether he can do that, that is going to be the key to whether he stays there long term, I think. Yeah, I think that it seems to be like the defensive intensity that he seems to be lacking 
And if you haven't got the intensity as a fullback, you're not going to do any better if you haven't got the intensity as a midfielder. You're not getting away with it. You're not getting covered if you're centre mid. You've still got to exhibit that same degree of intensity that you previously did. So um, it's a complex question, and it's it's one that maybe I should say as well. Felix Tan also put in this question, so I just wanted to give him a shout out there. But um, it's a complex question. It's it's one that. Maybe, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, maybe if if we get to like the last five games of the season and we're out of the Champions League running and, and we don't really have much to play for, maybe you experiment then. But I still think it's I don't know. At the clock knows him better than all of us, doesn't he? But we'll have to move on anyway. We'll, put, we'll spend about fifteen minutes on one question. Who's <laughs> <laughs> next? Week. Well, uh, the next question, you mentioned Klopp, and the next one is has him in mind comes from Mike Arroyo. And he said, what are the top three underperforming and overperforming signings we've had in the Klopp era? Now, I think the overperforming is probably still easiest rather than underperforming. Because even though there's been more of them, I think there's two outstanding candidates. And then you could put a lot of people in for the third so my number one overperforming um, Klopp signing, unsurprisingly, is Mo Salah. Mm. Because he is not only much better than what we thought we were getting, but he's a completely different player than what most of us thought we were getting. And um, a lot of that is down to the way that we've used him, the way that we've motivated him, the way that he's kind of come in with his own motivation. But... A lot of that was we just didn't really recognise how good he was and what he's been able to do for this team and where he's taken us to. It's obvious. Number two, equally obvious, Andy Robertson. Um, yeah, they, they Mo, both came to mind for me, to be honest. Exactly. It's, it's like they really are the top two and yeah. clear. Um, not just because of the fact that he was only 8 million quid. The fact that he came from a team that had been relegated and it wasn't really like most people were talking about him during the season. There were occasional times where he'd get mentioned in dispatches, but it wasn't like there was a big race of people to kind of get him before he goes down. Klopp saw something that not a lot of other people did. And if you look back through Andy Robertson's career, very few people had to that point. But look at what he got out of him. Look at what he did since then. And yeah, it's undeniable that he's been superb number three like i said could be loads and loads and loads of people but because of how early on he was how fundamental he was to the evolutions of both the kind of funky getting it together clock team and then the superstars and the fact that he cost nada i'm going for joel matip and <laughs> okay. again someone who we didn't know a lot about when he signed there wasn't lots of people saying this is uh, one of the most promising guys. I mean, there were some, but I don't really feel like even between then and now, there was as much contra um, interest and knowledge of the Bundesliga. And so he was relatively under the radar. And again, he was nothing. He cost nothing. And he's given us so much. So that's my top three overperforming. Underperforming... This is where it gets tricky because generally, generally, there haven't been very many misses. Like Klopp has bought 51 footballers for a total of 666, no, 661 million pounds. 
and there hasn't been a lot of them that have not been worth the money. So I've had to start being harsh on people. Now, unfortunately, where we are in the world, I don't think anyone would say my first one is harsh, and that's Nabi Keita. And it's yeah. like, we can't sit here and say that he hasn't done any good things because I've argued for him, and I've spent a lot of the season saying that he should be playing more. But the fact remains that when you consider his Liverpool career as a whole, and as we are undoubtedly coming to the end of it now, you have to, it has been a disappointment. And the reason he's a number one is partly because, like I say, he has got good qualities, we just haven't seen them, but also how much he costs, how protracted that deal was, how long it took, how long we were longing for him, how great he looked. Part of that isn't his fault, the way that Leipzig played at the time is slightly different to what we were doing. But all those factors come into it, and I think, yeah, it has to be him at the number one spot. Number two, this is where it gets harsh. Um, I'm putting Karius at number two. And the reason I'm putting Karius at number two, he didn't but he didn't cost a lot, cost less than five million quid. But we had a problem at the time in Simon Mignolet. It was undoubtedly a problem. And Klopp was like, this is the guy to solve the problem. He went back to one of his former clubs in Mainz, someone who had promise, someone who Noagon was talking about once again. He's like, yeah, this is my guy. And as we saw, he unfortunately could not be the guy. Now, I have obviously got sympathy for him for the way it went down. I do still think he's getting a raw deal over that. But the consequences of that on his subsequent career are undeniable. And now we're in a situation where, whether it's unfair to him or not, it hasn't worked. He did underperform as a Liverpool player. And so that's why he makes his list. Number three... Whew, some people are going to be angry about number three. <laughs> now, I think it's very easy. See, I'm okay. Full disclosure I'm trying to decide between Alex Oxlade Chamberlain and Jordan Shakiri. And okay. some, pe some people would be surprised to hear me say Jordan Shakiri. But the reality is. He was a fella of moments at Liverpool, as in you can remember his highlight reels, the goals he scored, but that was very much feast and famine. There were long periods of time where we weren't getting what we expected, what we needed, what we wanted from him. It was seen as a, a kind of like a free hit almost, a very low bar, low risk, low reward, but it was still like £13 million. Pounds. And when you consider the list of people of um, as I say, signings that didn't necessarily do what we hoped they would. Very few of them others are higher than that, apart from, obviously, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. Now, again, when I mentioned Naby Keita, I said a lot of it wasn't entirely his fault with Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. Undoubtedly, that is the case. We could all know exactly why it didn't turn out the way it wanted it to, and it wasn't his fault. But the fact remains that we are where we are. And there are times now, I think he's been kind of hindered by the fact that we are still using him in a way that he probably can't be used. Like I wrote a piece last week uh, talking about the legacy of Liverpool midfielders who injuries become the dominant narrative in their career. And I mentioned Lucas, because he just retired. I mentioned Adam Alano, who's just signed a new contract to Brighton. 
and how when they left Liverpool, the assumption was they were pretty much done for. Like, top-level football was beyond them. They were going somewhere else. They're going to play on, but they weren't really going to be able to affect the game. Lucas played on in Lazio for another five years. As I say, Lallana's just earned himself another contract. So what I mean is, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain could go somewhere else, to Southampton, maybe even a West Ham, and suddenly look like a great footballer again. But that also kind of proves the point that he's underperformed in what we wanted him to do at Liverpool. So, like I say, it's harsh, but these are where we are. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, I would agree with most of your picks. I think my top three overperformer would, would be Salah, Robertson. My third, I think, would be Sadio Mane. Uh, I think Massive's a good shout, but I think Mane arrived from Southampton. It was a, a very fair fee, probably, I think you could say. And um, Although Salah probably assumed much of the spotlight, I think Mane was just still ridiculous, constantly available, an absolute monster on the defensive side. Going forward, just such a versatile player. We saw when he eventually started to play like Firmino that he just mastered it and just made it look dead easy, dead quick. Um, so, yeah, Mane, I'd be right up there for me. And in terms of underperforming, I would agree with Cater. I would agree with Carius. But my, my third would, would comfortably be Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. And I'd probably have him really close to Naby in terms of being underperforming. I, I think, to an extent, it hasn't been his fault. Because obviously you have to throw in the injuries, and up until I think the Roma injury was he, he was yeah. doing quite well. But I can't help. I, I I I struggle with the. He's a player who, naturally, you could argue has more potential than Jordan Henderson, for example. And the two coaches that Ox has worked under throughout his career, Arsene Wenger, and Jurgen Klopp, two absolute masters of harvesting potential and, and getting quality and, and, you know, refining rough diamonds, if you like. Mm-hmm. And I think when you've had them two coaches over the course of your career, you, okay, injuries, yes, but you, you I mean, you've, you've had the platform there for me. You, you've had the platform. And I think when I see him play, like when I see Naby play sometimes, I'm a bit like, yeah, it's just injuries. I'm just, he's so unfortunate. I remember watching Storage play and thinking, yeah, he's got so much quality, it's just injuries. When I watch Ox play, it's not just injuries, he's just not a very... I don't know, his decision-making it frustrates me a lot of the time, and I think he he's never really nailed down a position, and I think he's he's a bit... He's, he's, his decision-making is the main thing for me. I think he makes really mm. stupid decisions on the ball, and uh, he, he, looks, he looks really raw and really uncoached almost sometimes, and he shouldn't, he really shouldn't. No, I think that's fair. I, I, one thing I would push back on is I do think there was a period where he did look like he made that position his own and it was in the lead-up yeah. to that Roma game. Yeah, I, I agree. Think, I think the world looks very different for him and maybe even for us without that injury. Um, but part, I think after that point, part of the problem was he couldn't. he knew he couldn't play Stand amidst the way he could before he just it just wasn't his role anymore and to have to make that decision so early on having basically spent his whole career up to that point wanting to be that finally like making the move away from arsenal principally because he wanted to be that and not a wing back as he was playing at arsenal taking that big risk away from like you say such a great coach as wenger 
to come to Liverpool to prove that he could do that job. And then he'd got there and then it had gone almost as quickly as he got there. So I have some sympathy for him as well because that would have made a difference. But you're right. The last say Chamberlain that we've had for, pretty much since the league winning season, because that league winning season, he was still very effective. From that point onwards, he hasn't been effective in a way that I would say I would have got rid of him before now. I mean, when he leaves, I'm still gonna he's still gonna say thank you for what he's done. I'm still gonna happily remember the highlights, but there's gonna be a what if. I still hope yeah. he goes to West Ham and does well. I really yeah. do. Yeah, I hope he does well as well. I hope he does well myself, but I just feel like it's a uh, it it is very much yeah. Uh, what could have been if he'd have maximised what he had, and um, if he had if he didn't have injuries, maybe he would have. But I don't know. Part of me doubts a little bit. I've got a question from Lee Connor, and he asks: Besetic, Bellingham, Mount. Is this potential midfield good enough to get us challenging for titles again? I would take Polinia for his instant impact, good age, and defensive work with Besetic playing a bit part role. So, um. I'm a big fan of Polina. I think he's very, very good. I think he's an absolute ball winner in the middle of the park and there's numbers suggest that this season as well. Um, I think he's very well suited to what we've suffered from this season. But he's now 27. He's going to be 28 very soon. Let's not get started on that meme. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he's, he's nearly 28 anyway. Uh, and he's just signed for Fulham in the, in last summer, so he's got a contact until 2027. So you'd be paying a lot of money there for a 28-year-old, really, um, which I don't think is, is ideal. I don't think Bessetic... I think Bessetic is, is definitely going to be involved moving forward, but I agree we need to find a way of making him... of allowing him to play a bit part role, really. I don't think he should be starting in a title-charging team or anything like that. So... Rather than Bessetti's playing every week, I would rather that be probably Fabinho, providing he can get anywhere close to what he used to be. Um, and if he can, if you're asking me a midfield of Fabinho, Bellingham and Mount, I would say it is, yeah. And I think if if you were to say to me this summer, I've had this talk with my mates a few times actually, and if this summer Liverpool, the, the only midfielders Liverpool signed were Bellingham and Mount, would I be happy? And I, th- I think I really would, yeah. Um, I think I would. I, I would have small concerns about whether Fabinho can still do it. Because if he can't, we are a bit light at the six. But Bellingham is literally generational and can literally do it all. And Mount would really, really help with the the, the kind of restoration of the Klopp high press that we've kind of lost this season. He's a natural, naturally like that. He's like Lalana in, in that sense. He's just a natural presser and really works against the ball like a dog. So I think if we were to have Mountain Bellingham as our two eights with a capable Fabinho behind and a front three that is a bit more ingrained into like Klopp's ways and how to press and how to do certain things, I think we can get back to what we were. Um, so... My answer, in a way, is is yes, I think it would be. But I, I would yeah. want it to be a case of Bessetic isn't playing every single week. Yeah, Not yet. I agree. 
I agree with that. And I think you're right in as much as having Bellingham would allow that to happen because I do think when we're judging Fabinho, we're judging by the fact that he's now being asked to do more than he was before because the players around him are doing less. That's just simply a fact of wear and tear. So if you go back to a situation where the players around him can and will do more and he's having to do less, he should be able to keep his level high. It's just a case of probably reps and fitness. I'm like you. I would still prefer to have another six-ish, another six option in there. And I do think that Bicetic needs to be able to find a level where he's not being asked to do too much. <laughs> I did. I, I saw this question. I thought, I hope you do ask it because <laughs> this is one area. What I wouldn't say we have disagreement, but I saw the piece you wrote about Paulinho, in which we were talking about age. And I do think, personally, the age is a bit of a red herring. Because, yes, he will be 28 by the time the next season starts, but he was very much a late developer at Sporting. I mean, he wasn't a first choice throughout most of his career. He went out on loan to Braga for two seasons. So if you're comparing him to most 28-year-old midfielders, he's actually played a lot less games. So, for example, like... Bruno Fernandes has played over 500 games for club and country. Fabinho, I think he's 471 now. Uh, Paulinho, 256. That's considerably amount less. So essentially what it means is that he hasn't got that wear and tear in him. And even though he is 28, in terms of where he is, in terms of his peak, he's at the beginning. So it's almost like he's 23, 24. So if you're telling me we sign him on maybe a three-year deal with an option for a fourth year. I think you get three good years out of him. I think maybe if you want to sell him in the third year and sort of maintain some value, you probably still can. So I don't think it's as much of an issue. I also think the other thing with Palinho, and this might seem quite glib, but I think it will be important if it happens. Uh, Manchester United are definitely going to try and buy him because he is absolutely the answer to their what happens when Casemiro drops question. And you can already see it coming. So if we don't buy him and they do, I think it makes our team worse just by a proxy because they're better. But, I mean, I am slightly joking when I say that. That's not really (laughs) a reason to buy him. But it is something that we would probably see happen if we don't. Um, I do do agree. I I do think he's... He fits the mold, and he's a uh, he, he, he is kind of exactly what we haven't had, and you know he's even like six foot three, like he's a really physical presence and things like that, and he, he he's natural in that six and proving himself in the Premier League this season. So I do really like him. If Liverpool went for him, I wouldn't necessarily be like, mm, you know, what are they doing there? I, I I would understand it. It's just if he was two years younger, I would get it a bit more. But yeah, you are right that he is his minutes accumulation over the course of his career. It probably do paint more of a picture of like a 24 year old to be honest or something like that analyzing anfield on the blood red channel yeah yeah and i and i think that because he's come into it late as well he would be able to attack it i think you see the way in fulham he hasn't been there very long and yet he's already someone who's one of the more vocal players he's very much a tone setter in terms of his tackling with them. And he hasn't exactly been meek when he's come into it. And again, if you compare him 
if you look along the timeline of sporting midfielders past and present, obviously Mateus Nunes is someone who we were all talking about, myself included, at the beginning of the season. As the season's played out, I've had probably more doubts about him, specifically in terms of his discipline to be able to play the position the way we want it, and less about Palinha. And that just shows the benefit of having someone come into England and see how they look in England, because I do think it's still something for players to have to adapt to, and not just about the league and all of those things, but just how certain things are refereed, uh, what you can get away with, what you can't get away with. And in central midfield, that's probably more important than arguably any other position. Yeah, I agree, mate. Um, whose question is it? Was it mine or yours? <laughs> I think it's mine. Um, okay. I'm, okay, yeah, here we go. I was just trying to find it. I was someone I was looking for. So this question has been asked by uh, Richard Smith, and it's also kind of been asked in a way by someone else. And there's lots of kind of talk about midfield options. And we might as well do it. We might as well do it one time. And it's um, what he's asked is, if we don't get Bellingham, who is the best alternative? But others have asked for, um, if you had 140 million, what three uh, midfielders would you buy? Someone else, I can see who asked that question. Actually, I can't see that. Yes, there's been uh, quite a few along the yeah, line. Carl yeah, Carl Rooney, sorry. Carl Rooney asked that question. So... The thing about having Bellingham, as we've mentioned, he's a generational player. He does the work of more than one. So the idea of having one player who can kind of be like a Bellingham light, there isn't really. Like, I've kind of looked for him deep, deep, deep within the stats. (laughs) There really isn't anyone who's that close in all of the things that he brings. So it's going to have to be a composite. Now, I think what I would do without him really does change what I would do with him. And so, for example, if I'm looking at three midfielders, I'm thinking of all of the parameters we need to look at. I want one of them to be someone who can hit the ground running, as in someone not necessarily who's going to have to have a long adaption period, whether that's someone from the league or someone who's a little bit older and more experienced. One of them's going to have to be homegrown slash British. I think that's just the lay of the land. We're still unsure about some of the guys who are homegrown who are in the squad in this position. So I think it would make sense to bring another one in for whatever reason. And if we're not bringing Bellingham in, then that definitely becomes a life situation. So I want to also, you've got to think about the attributes. So I'd want someone who can play as a six, that's for sure. Someone who has the attributes of a six, but predominantly does play as an eight, a box to box. And then a guy who can give you goals. Those are kind of my three, um, uh, what I want of the three midfielders. I mean, I I want them to be adaptable, essentially. But if you're kind of breaking it down, that's what I'm looking at. So because you aren't getting that presence, that um, personality of Bellingham, I am picking Palini as one of my three. And I was tempted by the guy who's there now who's replaced him, Manuel Ugarte, He's a very good player. And I think we'll grow into a very good player. And again, I wouldn't be upset if we did target him. I just think in terms of the makeup of a three-man guys coming in, when you consider the amount of upheaval that's going to be in that midfield, like we have to think about the real-world situation, the real-world problems of this. If there's four or five guys coming out, three or four guys coming in, 
you need people who can pick it up quickly, who can go out there and show what they want, show their game straight away. And as I said, Paulinho has done that with Fulham. So he's my first pick. My boxy eight, I considered Yusuf Ivana, but again, I think I probably want a little bit more attacking thrust. I love you, Yusuf. And if we were getting Bellingham, I'd probably still go for him. But I've gone just for Manu Kone, just above, just above Kefren Turam as well, who was very much in the mix. I think in terms of what he can give you, he's still very much a big mould of clay. You can turn him into whatever you want him to be. But the natural ability to carry the ball, to have the presence of mind, to be able to distribute it well, but also be dangerous going forward, break up attacks and tackle well. I just think he brings so much to the game. Energy, pressing ability, all of those things. The third one's actually the hardest one. <laughs> it's the one that I actually struggle with the most as an attacking midfielder. And as I say, if we're not going with um, Jude Bellingham, I'm having to bring in an attacking British midfielder. And my choice is Jacob Ramsey. Now, a lot of people will be surprised about Jacob Ramsey, but I think that he's already shown me that he can be more talented than he's been allowed to be at Aston Villa. I think about the way that Steven Gerrard wanted to play him as kind of like very much an attacking a uh, box-to-box kind of guy. I think about the role he's now fulfilling uh, uh, under Unai Emery, where he's more of a right-sided forward in the 4-2-3-1. And he's excelling at both. And he's someone who has arrived late in the box, he's got a shot on him, scored a lot of goals. So he's I, I, a guy who's got a lot of upside. Out of incest, could that player be Mount? It could. And the only reason why I had Ramsey over Mount is I think price. I think Chelsea is still gonna make it really difficult for us. <laughs> and again, I think if we're in a situation where we're looking to do three midfielders and something in defence as well, which we might well be then anywhere we can sneak in some extra value, I think it works. Now, like I say, if we ended up buying Mason Mount, I'd be happy. I think that it's easier for us to meet all of our objectives if we go for someone like Jacob Ramsey, who's probably, if you're looking maybe 45, 50 for Mount, I think you're probably looking at maybe 30, 35 for Ramsey. And I think that might well be a significant difference, particularly when you throw wages into the mix as well. Yeah, so I've got a question from Alex Webster, and he asks, basically says, if you was Klopp and you was given a decent budget this summer, what would your dream transfer window consist of, hmm. both in terms of incomings and outgoings? Um, I think, obviously, number one would be would be Bellingham. Um, number two, I would like Mount. I would be a big fan of, of Liverpool getting Mount. Um, I would let Naby leave, obviously. I would let Kate, I would let Oxley Chamberlain leave. Um, I would probably sell Naf Phillips. I would listen to offers for Matip if there was any to come in. If one of them did come in and we sold Matip, I would look for a left-footed centre-back, ideally. Um 
Yes, I don't know if uh, he's got Gradio left footed, I think he is, isn't he? Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he would obviously co- cost an awful lot. Um, I think he'd be almost impossible to land, but he is a, a Liverpool fan, and <laughs> we do we do have a, a relationship with Red Bull by the looks yeah, of it. True. Say that again. No, it's true. It's true. We do, and it would yeah, it would make a difference. Yeah, and um, I don't know if we could potentially do a Chelsea there by just kind of paying a lot of money for him, but doing it over a longer contract potentially. Like we're probably going to do with Bellingham if we get him. And then you okay, you're spending a lot on a new centre back in Gradiol and the new centre made in Bellingham. But you're spending a lot on two lads there who want one of them's nineteen, one of them's twenty-one. They kind of take care of you for the next decade. So that's a I mean, I can't see us doing both to be honest, but I'm just this I mean we're talking dream transfer window here. So um but yeah, I think that would be a serious kind of Window where we like a statement window if you want if we if we was to get those three players you got absolute mm-hmm. proven elite game winning quality there in all three players, um, I think the attack is pretty much fine, um, I think if Matter was to stay, uh, the back line would probably be, I I I am of this opinion that the back line is mostly fine even though it's looked awful this season. And I think it stems again from the midfield. I have been pushing all season that if you fix what Klopp labels as the engine room, if you add the energy back to the engine room and you put players in there who are going to win the ball more than they have done, you will fix a lot of the problems Mm -hmm. and suddenly the defence will look protected and all this stuff. So I don't think we need that much. I really don't. I don't think we need a a massive overhaul. People talk about like, you know, three hundred million and all this nonsense, and I just don't think we need that much. But we we, we need to 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 make a, f- a few statements, a few marquees. I think. No, I agree with that. I agree with most of that. I would have Bastoni ahead of Guardiola for the reasons I outlined earlier in the show. But outside yeah. of that, it's pretty much the same. I think the interesting thing for me would come would be if they become serious close to valuation offers for some of the others. I think we may be getting close to a scenario where we can only really carry, in terms of injury records, one of Matip and Gomez. And while obviously Matip is the most obvious one to go because he's older, and obviously Joe's obviously a right back cover as well, I do think in terms of who would be be easier and more okay with being fourth choice centre-back, I think it's probably Matip. So if you mm. think you can still get production out of him as much as you want out of a full centre-back, then go for it. But the problem is, is that we've already seen the history of Liverpool says that the fourth-choice centre-back actually plays a lot more than you realise because the others are not a lot or injured. So, yeah, it's a bit of a circular situation. I think in midfield, there are a couple of guys for whom, if serious offers come in, there might be conversations around um, I'm not 100% sure whether or not those offers will come in, but I think that that would come into it. I, yeah. I, think there's a, I think there's a fair few players in the squad who, after this season, you would think about if you had a bid or had interest or anything like that. Whereas the same question, like, 10 months ago, would have been a straight no, probably. But I think yes. now there's quite a few 
players in the squad where you're just a bit like, mm, we'll think about it maybe. I don't think and there's that many that are safe. And there's an argument to say that it's disrespectful to them because of how good they were six months ago. But the fact remains is that football is fluid. Like, you have to assess on what you have in the moment. You can say, like we were saying before, once we get these guys in, these guys are going to look better. And you can project that based on what you've seen previously. That's fine. But the fact is, is that if you're still asking the same people to do the same job in the same way and they aren't doing it, there gets to a point where it's like, well, maybe they just can't do it anymore. Or maybe the hope that the player that we hope they would turn into just isn't there. And then we have to make decisions because we don't want to get into situations where we know that there's guys in the squad who can't really do it anymore. And we're just having to wait until they leave because no one else really wants them. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah. Who's next? Uh, oh, good question. Um, which? Oh, well, I wasn't sure whether you were going to tackle this, but you haven't yet, so I'm going to go into it on your behalf. Um, <laughs> on a recent episode, Josh dismissed Man United's quadruple chase because of the Europa League. I don't want to see it happen. <laughs> I don't think it will be close in the league anyway. No, they will not. But uh, Liverpool's run to the Champions League final went Inter, who were Italian champions, Porto, who were third in Portugal, and Villarreal, who was Spain, who were seventh at the time. Whereas Man United faced Barcelona, Real Betis and Sevilla, with potentially Juventus still to come. So the stage is different, but the quality of opponent is similar. That is the argument of... Let me find this person's name. Oh, God, I really hate the spreadsheet, you know. Uh, <laughs> ben Marshall, sorry. Oh, no, wait, it's not Ben Marshall. It's Larkin, sorry. Larkin. Yeah, one name. yeah. So, this is an argument that has been put across. I would like and... to, to, to quickly throw in a caveat here. Larkin is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely did not say this. I don't know what you're on about, to be honest. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, I, mean... I, I didn't say anything about the, the Europa League, I don't think. I, I, if, I, if I did say that United aren't going to win a quadruple, it was because of the league. The, the Europa yeah. League, they can absolutely win. That's that's absolutely plausible. Eh? But the I Premier maybe, League, I've never maybe... believed that it's close to coming, coming anywhere near top of that. No. I think maybe he thought that it wasn't as good as Liverpool's quadruple because they're chasing the Europa League and we're chasing the Champions League. I think that might have been some of the um, some of the uh, accusation. But for starters, Larkin was wrong because we faced Porto in the group stage and we actually faced Benfica in the quarterfinals, who were the champions. And by that point, we had already faced in the group stage the champions of. Spain in Atletico Madrid, and the team that would go on to be the champions of Italy, AC Milan. Whereas Manchester United faced Real Sociedad, who admittedly are in the Champions League places right now for Spain, but also Sheriff Tiraspol of Moldova and Omen Nicosia. So when you're talking about comparison of quality over the course of all the teams played in the competition in those years, then yes, Liverpool's are significantly higher, even if Man United draw Juventus. Yeah, to be honest, I've just reread the question and I actually see where he's coming from. Actually, because I think he's signed a, I think he's kind of saying, rather than me, I'm dismissing Man United's quadruple as in it's not much of a quadruple. I think that's what he means, rather yeah. than me dismissing it as in they won't win one. Because yeah. my biggest doubt regarding them winning the quadruple was the Premier League. Yeah, 
because they were just never anywhere near close for me. So yeah, I see what you mean. <laughs> Truce. Um, <laughs> so I've got two questions. We'll end on this, I think. Uh, I've got two questions from... Uh, one is from Inter Alia, and the other one is from David Williams. And both of them are basically along the lines of Liverpool having an attitude problem and lack of character. Uh, our heads go down if we concede. Um, things like that, basically. When we play the bottom sides in the division in particular and stuff. So, um, I think I, I agree that it's it looks like a thing because it's something that's kind of bothered me in certain moments. It, it has looked like players are just kind of fed up or tired of losing or want to get out of there or, or, or whatever. Um, and it is frustrating to watch, especially as a supporter, because you know that when you're on, if you was on the pitch, you'd be absolutely killing yourself and mm-hmm. in attempts to win the ball. But I think generally this kind of thing just stems from consistency and feeling like a unified, good team on the pitch. And I think a good example of that is Manchester United. Very recently, like you know, we're talking like ten months. You gotta say the difference between Liverpool being literally in the hunt for a quadruple and being one point and one Champions League final away from securing it and the Liverpool now is ten months by the way. You know, ten months is is a really short space of time. So ten months ago, Man United I think were coming to the end of the Rangic period. Um it looked like none of them wanted to be there. Uh, Rashid was toying with PSG. Um, it, Ronaldo was kicking up a force and all this stuff, and it, it did look like United had major character issues, basically. Mm-hmm. But all, all it kind of takes is a few changes to the squad, but but mainly good performances on the pitch. You, the, the kind of the mentality stuff stems from like the good performances. The good the good performances, particularly defensively, usually. A kind of the platform for, from which you then build confidence and morale and togetherness and things like that. So, I do think yeah. Liverpool have 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 been found wanting a little bit when it comes to the attitude, particularly as the season has gone on. But I do think it just stems from the team's performances, and once that kind of turns around, say if we address the concerns in the summer in the transfer window. I do think very quickly Liverpool will become mentality monsters again. It's just kind of how things tend to go. Yeah, I do. I do think that's true. I think the the um, to a certain extent, I think the evidence of what you're saying about Manchester United is what happens when those performances went, namely when they got pumped seven 0 by Liverpool. Yeah, like <laughs> like suddenly all of that great mentality just dissipated and they all started, you know, doing what they were doing. So. Yeah. It can be that fragile and it can be that reliant on results. The other thing that I notice, and I think that as a playing a big part, is freshness. And I don't just mean freshness in terms of fitness, but I mean freshness in terms of zest, in terms of motivation. Like I've literally this afternoon or this morning been watching the documentary about this guy, Bill Russell, one of the greatest NBA players of all time. Someone who won eight championships in a row with the Boston Celtics and then became the coach, and then he lost one year, and then he went back and won it the next year. And he was literally in the middle of a game, in the middle of a timeout, and he suddenly realised, like, I don't have it in me. I don't have it in me anymore. 
I don't care as much as I should do. And once you have that feeling, it never goes. And yeah. that comes from wear and tear of having to be the best. Like, he came into the league, won the championship in his first year. Like, there was only two years in his career where he didn't win the title. All that time, 13 years, it was about, we're going to win. We have to win. We have to be the best. All that time. And he just, it gets too much. And I think that there's a lot of guys in that dressing room at the moment for whom, in the past, when bad performances were bad or people weren't meeting standards, they were able to give everyone a rocket because everyone understood where it was coming from. And everyone could look at that guy and say, look, he's been leading us for the, to where we want to be. We know that. And so we can follow him. After a time, it gets harder and it gets harder and it gets harder. And also, when the guys who are there shouting and screaming at you aren't putting in the performances themselves, then it gets to a point of, well, why am I listening to you? You're just as bad. You're worse. And all of those things start to come in. I look at the teams at the moment who are on the up. Arsenal, Newcastle, Brighton. They're all at the beginning of their nucleus as teams. They're yeah. all at the beginning of their journey. They're loving it. They can't believe that they're able to do this. You see it from Arsenal. 2-0 down against Brighton at home an hour gone. All of the headlines would have been flashing through their eyes. They just kept playing. Won it with the last kick of the game. Newcastle and Nottingham Forest didn't really play that well. Went behind. We've all seen what Forest are like when they're up, when they're at home. Came back, found a way to win. Able to go that extra yard. Brighton, they've only lost one game in this calendar year. They are consistently able to meet the challenges to, set to them. They're in the FA Cup semi-final and they're probably going to get into Europe next season from another method through the league. All these teams are still just believing in each other, just finding their feet and going forward. And it's so much easier to ride the bumps when you're at that stage than when you're old and jaded. Yeah, I think with some players, I am slightly concerned whether the, the fire has just kind of gone out. Um, the biggest concern I have with that is Fabinho, I think. But overall, I do think that above all else, performances breed con like consistency and belief and, and mentality and things like that. So I would hope that it will come back as soon as we start playing well again. And I've said all season, I think it's a transfer window problem, this one. Yeah. And if we address it properly in a transfer window this summer, we will be back. Um, but yeah, we've got loads of questions that we haven't got through, as usual. As so <laughs> Yeah, so some shout-outs. Um, Chintan Barrow, Adam Zant. Leston Williams, um, Luis Goncalves, Salim Saeed, Ahmed El Tuni, uh, Luke Young, Fraser Turner, Ryan Qu Ronald Quigley, uh, Roger Johnson. We've got there's loads of them. So um, I will be answering three or four more on this week's newsletter, which I'll be sending later today. But if even after that I still don't get to yours. Apologies. Try again next time. We'll we'll have a go. Um, but Mo, yeah, thanks for joining us, mate. No worries. A very fun show. I hope everyone else agrees. Yeah, and we'll be back next week to talk about football. Uh, Liverpool have Manchester City, Chelsea, and Arsenal. I think so. It's a huge week. Um, some nice matches to talk about there. So very different to this week's episode. But yeah, we'll see you then. And uh, thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.